0: Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight, and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be starting a new story, the Yosemite By John Muir. Chapter 1, Part 1 Approach to the Valley. After popular demand from our survey, we'll now be reading one story at a time on the podcast. You'll also find that all previous stories are now in episode order. I hope this makes it easier to listen to the stories that you enjoy most. If you'd like to send over any more thoughts or recommendations, please email andrew at sendmetosleep.com. So let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 1 The Approach to the Valley When I set out on the long excursion that finally led to California, I wandered afoot and alone from Indiana to the Gulf of Mexico with a plant press on my back, holding a generally southward course like the bird when they are going from summer to winter. From the west coast of Florida, I crossed the gulf to Cuba, enjoyed the rich, tropical flora there for a few months, intending to go thence to the north end of South America, make my way through the woods to the headwaters of the Amazon, and float down that grand river to the ocean. But when I was unable to find a ship bound for South America, Fortunately, perhaps, for I had incredibly little money for so long a trip and had not yet fully recovered from a fever caught in the Florida swamps. Therefore, I decided to visit California for a year or two to see its wonderful flora and the famous Yosemite Valley. All the world was before me, and every day was a holiday, So it did not seem important to which of the world's wildernesses I first should wander. Arriving by the Panama Streamer, I stopped one day in San Francisco and then inquired for the nearest way out of town. But where do you want to go? asked the man to whom I had applied for this important information. To any place that is wild, I said. This reply startled him. He seemed to fear I might be crazy, and therefore, the sooner I was out of town, the better. So he directed me to the Oakland Ferry. So on the 1st of April, 1868, I set out afoot for Yosemite. It was the bloom time of year over the lowlands, and the coast ranges, the landscape of the Santa Clara Valley, were fairly drenched with sunshine. All the air was quivering with the songs of the meadow larks, and the hills were so covered with flowers that they seemed to be painted. Slow indeed was my progress through these glorious gardens the first of the California flora I had seen. Cattle and cultivation were making few scars as yet, and I wandered enchanted in long wavering curves, knowing by my pocket map that Yosemite Valley lay to the east and that I should surely find it. The Sierra from the West Looking eastward from the summit of the Pacheco Pass one shining morning, a landscape was displayed that, after all my wanderings, still appeared as the most beautiful I had ever beheld. At my feet lay the great central valley of California, level and flowery like a lake of pure sunshine, forty or fifty miles wide. 500 miles long, one rich furred garden of yellow composite, and from the eastern boundary of this vast golden flowerbed rose the mighty Sierra, miles in height, and so gloriously coloured and so radiant, it seemed not clothed with light, but wholly composed of it like the walls of some celestial city. Along the top, and extending a good way down, was a rich, pearly-grey belt of snow. Below it, a belt of blue and dark purple, marking the extension of the forests, and stretching along the base of the range, a broad belt of rose-purple, All these colours, from the blue sky to the yellow valley, smoothly blending as they do in a rainbow, making a wall of light ineffably fine. Then it seemed to me that the Sierra should be called not the Nevada or Snowy Range, but the Range of Light. And after ten years of wandering, and wandering in the heart of it, rejoicing in its glorious floods of light, the white beams of the morning streaming through the passes, the noonday radiance on the crystal rocks, the flush of the Alpen glow, and the irised spray of countless waterfalls. It still seemed above all others the range of light. In general views, no mark of man is visible upon it, nor anything to suggest the wonderful depth and grandeur of its sculpture. None of its magnificent forest-crowned ridges seems to rise much above the general level to publish its wealth. No great valley or river is seen, or group of well-marked features of any kind standing out as distinct pictures. Even the summit peaks, marshaled in glorious array so high in the sky, seem comparatively regular in form. Nevertheless, the whole range, 500 miles long, is furrowed with canyons 2,000 to 5,000 feet deep, in which once flowed majestic glaciers and in which now flow and sing the bright rejoicing rivers. Characteristics of the Canyons Though of such stupendous depths, these canyons are not gloom gorges, savage and inaccessible, with rough passages here and there. There are flowery pathways conducting to the snowy, icy fountains. Mountain streets full of life and light, graded and sculpted by the ancient glaciers, and presenting throughout all their course a rich variety of novel and attractive scenery. The most attractive that has yet been discovered in the mountain ranges of the world. In many places, especially in the middle region of the western flank, the main canyons widen into spacious valleys or parks diversified like landscape gardens with meadows and groves and thickets of blooming bushes, while the lofty walls infinitely varied in form and fringed with ferns, flowering plants, shrubs of many species, and tall evergreens and oaks that find foothold on small benches and tables are enlivened and made glorious with rejoicing stream that come chanting in chorus over the cliff and through the side canyon in fall of every conceivable form to join the river that flows in tranquil, shining beauty down the middle of each one of them. The Incomparable Yosemite The most famous and accessible of these canyon valleys, and also the one that presents their most striking and sublime features on the grandest scale, is the Yosemite. Situated in the basin of the Merced River at an elevation of 4,000 feet above the level of the sea, It is about seven miles long, half a mile to a mile wide, and nearly a mile deep in the solid granite flank of the range. The walls are made up of rocks, mountains in size, partly separated from each other by side canyons, and they are so sheer in front and so compactly and harmoniously arranged on a level floor that the valley, comprehensively seen, looks like an immense hall or temple lighted from above. But no temple made with hands can compare with Yosemite. Every rock in its walls seemed to glow with life. Some lean back in majestic repose, others absolutely sheer or nearly so for thousands of feet, advance beyond their companions in thoughtful attitudes, giving welcome to storms and calms alike, seemingly aware, yet heedless, of everything going on about them. Awful in stern, immovable majesty, how softly these rocks are adorned and how fine and reassuring the company they keep. Their feet among beautiful groves and meadows, their brows in the sky. A thousand flowers leaning confidingly against their feet, bathed in floods of water, floods of light, while the snow and waterfalls, the winds and avalanches and clouds Shine and sing, and wreaths about them as the years go by. And myriads of small winged creatures, birds, bees, butterflies, give glad animation and help to make all the air into music. Down through the middle of the valley flows the crystal merced, river of mercy peacefully quiet, reflecting lilies and trees and the onlooking rocks, things frail and fleeting and types of endurance meeting here and blending in countless forms, as if into this one mountain mansion, nature had gathered her choicest treasures to draw her lovers into close and confiding communion with her. the approach to the valley. Sauntering up the foothills to Yosemite, by any of the old trails or roads in use before the railway was built from the town of Merced, up the river to the boundary of Yosemite Park, richer and wilder became the forests and streams. At an elevation of 6,000 feet above the level of the sea, the silver firs are 200 feet high, with branches whirled around the colossal shafts in regular order, and every branch beautifully pinnate like a fern frond. The Douglas spruce, the yellow and sugar pines, and brown-barked Libocedrus here reach their finest developments of beauty and grandeur. The majestic Sokoa is here too, the king of the conifers, the noblest of all the noble race. These colossal trees are as wonderful in finesse of beauty and proportion as in stature. An assemblage of conifers surpassing all that have ever yet been discovered in the forest of the new world. Here, indeed, the tree-lover's paradise, the woods, dry and wholesome, letting in the light in shimmering masses of half-sunshine, half-shade, the night air as well as the day air, indescribably spicy and exhilarating, plushy fir boughs for campers' beds, and cascades to sing us to sleep. The silver fir, Abias Magnifica, forms the bulk of the woods, pressing forward in glorious array to the very brink of the valley walls on both sides, and beyond the valley to a height of from 8,000 to 9,000 feet above the level of the sea. Thus it appears that Yosemite, presenting such stupendous faces of bare granite, is nevertheless embedded in magnificent forest, and the main species of pine, fir, spruce and libocedrus are also found in the valley itself. But there are no big trees, Secoa gigantus, in the valley or about the rim of it. The nearest are about 10 and 20 miles beyond the lower end of the valley, on small tributaries of the Merced and Chulum rivers. The First View The Bridal Veil From the margin of these glorious forests, the first general view of the valley used to be gained, a revelation in landscape affairs that enriches one's life forever. Entering the valley, gazing overwhelmed with the multitude of grand objects about us, perhaps the first to fix our attention will be the bridal veil a beautiful waterfall on our right. Its brow, where it first leaps free from the cliff, is about nine hundred feet above us, and as it sways and sings in the wind, clad in gauzy, sun-sifted spray, half falling, half floating, it seems infinitely gentle and fine, But the hymns it sings tells the solemn fateful power. Hidden beneath its soft clothing, the bridal veil shoots free from the upper edge of the cliff by the velocity the stream has acquired in descending a long slope above the head of the fall. Looking from the top of the rock avalanche talus on the west side, about 100 feet above the foot of the fall, the under-surface of the water arch is seen to be finely grooved and striated, and the sky is seen through the arch between the rock and water, making a novel and beautiful effect. Under ordinary weather conditions, the fall strikes on flat-topped slabs, forming a kind of ledge about two-thirds of the way down from the top, and as the fall sways back and forth with the great variety of motions among these flat-topped pillars, kissing and plashing notes as well as thunder-like detonations are produced, like those of the Yosemite Fall, though on a smaller scale, The rainbows of the veil, or rather, the spray and foam bows, are superb because the waters are dashed among angular blocks of granite at the foot, producing abundance of spray of the best quality for iris effect, and also for a luxuriant growth of grass and maiden hair on the side of the talus, which lower down is planted with oak, laurel, and willows. General Features of the Valley On the other side of the valley, almost immediately opposite the bridal veil, there is another fine fall, considerably wider than the veil when the snow is melting fast and more than a thousand feet in height. Measured from the brow of the cliff, where it first springs out into the air to the head of the rocky talus on which it strikes and is broken up into ragged cascades. It is called the Ribbon Fall or Virgins Tears. During the spring floods, it is a magnificent object, but the suffocating blasts of spray. That fill the recesses in the wall which it occupies prevent a near approach. In autumn, however, when its feeble current falls in a shower, it may then pass for tears with the sentimental onlooker, fresh from a visit to the bridal veil. Just beyond this glorious flood, the El Captain Rock regarded by many as the most sublime feature of the valley, is seen through the pine groves, standing forward beyond the general line of the wall in most imposing grandeur, a type of permanence. It is 3,300 feet high, a plain, severely simple, glacier-sculpted face of granite, the end of one of the most compact and enduring of the mountain ridges, unrivaled in height and breadth, and flawless strength. Across the valley from here, next to the bridal veil, are the picturesque cathedral rocks, nearly 2,700 feet high, making a noble display of fine yet massive sculpture, They are closely related to El Capitan, having been eroded from the same mountain ridge by the great Yosemite glacier when the valley was in process of formation. Next to the cathedral rocks on the south side towers, the sentinel rock to a height of more than 3,000 feet, a telling monument of the glacial period. Almost immediately opposite the sentinel are the Three Brothers, an immense mountain mass with three gables fronting the valley, one above the other, the topmost gable nearly 4,000 feet high. They were named for the Three Brothers, sons of Old Tenaya, the Yosemite chief, captured here during the Indian War. At the time of the discovery of the valley, in 1852, sauntering up the valley through the meadow and grove, in the company of these majestic rocks, which seem to follow us as we advance, gazing, admiring, looking for new wonders ahead, where all about us is so wonderful. The thunder of Yosemite fall is heard. And when we arrive in front of the sentinel rock, it is revealed in all its glory from base to summit, half a mile in height, and seeming to spring out into the valley sunshine, direct from the sky. But even this fall, perhaps the most wonderful of its kind in the world, cannot at first hold our attention. For now, the wide upper portion of the valley is displayed to view, with the finely modelled north dome, the royal arches, and Washington Column on our left, Glacier Point with its massive, magnificent sculpture on the right, and in the middle, directly in front, looms Tissiac or Half Dome, the most beautiful and most sublime of all the wonderful Yosemite rocks, rising in serene majesty from flowery groves and meadows to a height of 4,750 feet. The Upper Canyons Here the valley divides into three branches, the Tenaya, Nevada, and Iluet canyons, extending back into the fountains of the High Sierra, with scenery every way worthy the relation they bear to Yosemite. In the South Branch, a mile or two from the main valley, is the Iluet Fall, 600 feet high, one of the most beautiful of all the Yosemite Choir. But to most people, inaccessible as yet on account of its rough, steep, boulder choked canyon. Its principal fountains of ice and snow lie in the beautiful and interesting mountains of the Merced Group, while its broad open basin between its fountain mountains and the canyon is noted for the beauty of its lakes and forests. And magnificent moraines. Returning to the valley and going up the north branch of the Tanaya Canyon, we pass between the North Dome and Half Dome, and in less than an hour come to Mirror Lake, the Dome Cascade and Tanaya Fall. Beyond the Fall, on the north side of the canyon, is the sublime El Capitan-like rock called Mount Watkins. On the south, the vast granite wave of clouds rest a mile in height, and between them, the fine Tenaya Cascade, with silvery plumes outspread on smooth, glacier-polished folds of granite, making a vertical descent in all of about 700 feet Just beyond the Dome Cascades, on the shoulder of Mount Watkins, there is an old trail once used by Indians on their way across the range to Mono, but in the canyon above this point there is no trail of any sort. Between Mount Watkins and Cloud's Rest, the canyon is accessible only to mountaineers, and it is so dangerous but I hesitate to advise even good climbers, anxious to test their nerve and skill to attempt to pass through it. Beyond the Cascades, no great difficulty will be encountered. A succession of charming lily gardens and meadows occur in filled-up lake basins among the rock waves in the bottom of the canyon, and everywhere... The surface of the granite has a smooth white appearance and in many places reflects the sunbeams like glass, a phenomenon due to glacial action, the canyon having been the channel of one of the main tributaries of the ancient Yosemite Glacier. About ten miles above the valley, we come to the beautiful Tenaya Lake. And here the canyon terminates. A mile or two above the lake stands the Grand Sierra Cathedral, a building of one stone, sewn from the living rock, with sides, roof, gable, spire, and ornamental pinnacles, fashioned and finished symmetrically, like a work of art, and set on a well graded plateau. About 9,000 feet high, as if nature, in making so fine a building, had also been careful that it should be finely seen. From every direction, its peculiar form and graceful, majestic beauty of expression never fail to charm. Its height from its base to the ridge of the roof is about 2,500 feet and among the pinnacles that adorn the front grand views, may be gained of the upper basins of the Merced and Chulum rivers. Passing the cathedral, we descend into the delightful, spacious Chulum Valley, from which excursions may be made to Mount Dana, Lao, Ritter, Connes, and Mono Lake, and to the many curious peaks that rise above the meadows on the south, and the big Chulum Canyon, with its glorious abundance of rock, and falling, gliding, tossing water. For all these, the beautiful meadows near the Soda Springs form a delightful centre, Natural Features Near the Valley. Returning now to Yosemite and ascending the middle or Nevada branch of the valley, occupied by the main Merced River, we come within a few miles of the Vernal and Nevada Falls, 400 and 600 feet in height, pouring their white, rejoicing waters in the midst of the most novel and sublime rock scenery to be found in all the world. Tracing the river beyond the head of the Nevada form, we are led into the Little Yosemite, a valley like the Great Yosemite in form, sculpture, and vegetation. It is about three miles long, with walls 1,500 to 2,000 feet high, cascades coming over them, and even flowing through the meadows and groves of the level bottom, is tranquil, richly embowered reaches. Beyond this little Yosemite in the main canyon, there are three other little Yosemites, the highest situated a few miles below the base of Mount Lyle, at an elevation, of about 7,800 feet above the sea. To describe these with all their wealth of Yosemite furniture and the wilderness of lofty peaks above them, the home of the avalanche and treasury of the fountain snow would take us far beyond the bounds of a single book. Nor can we consider the formation of these mountain landscapes How the crystal rock were brought to light by glaciers made up of crystal snow, making beauty whose influence is so mysterious on everyone who sees it. Of the small glacier lakes so characteristic of these upper regions, there are no fewer than 67 in the basin of the main middle branch, besides countless smaller pools. In the basin of the Iluet, there are sixteen, in the Tanaya Basin and its branches, thirteen, in the Yosemite Creek Basin, fourteen, and in the Pahono or Bridal Vale, one, making a grand total of one hundred and eleven lakes whose waters came to sing at Yosemite. So glorious is the background of the Great Valley, so harmonious its relations to its wide-spreading fountains. The same harmony prevails in all the other features of the adjacent landscapes. Climbing out of the valley by the subordinate canyons, we find the ground rising from the brink of the walls, On the south side to the fountains of the Bridal Veil Creek, the basin of which is noted for the beauty of its meadows and its superb forests of silver fir. On the north side through the basin of the Yosemite Creek, to the dividing ridge along the Tulum Canyon and the fountains of the Hoffman Range. Down the Yosemite Creek In general views, the Yosemite Creek Basin seems to be paved with domes and smooth, whale-back masses of granite in every stage of development, some showing only their crowns, others rising high and free above the girdling forests, singly or in groups. Others are developed only on one side, forming bold, outstanding bosses usually well fringed with shrubs and trees, and presenting the polished surfaces given them by the glacier that brought them into relief. On the upper portion of the basin, broad moraine beds have been deposited, and on these, fine, thrifty forests are growing. Lakes and meadows and small spongy bogs may be found hiding here and there in the woods, or back in the fountain recesses of Mount Hoffman, while a thousand gardens are planted along the banks of the streams. All the wide, fan-shaped upper portion of the basin is covered with a network of small rills that go cheerily on their way to their grand fall in the valley, now flowing on smooth pavements in sheets thin as glass, now dividing under willows and leaving their red roots, oozing through green, plushy bogs, splashing over small falls and dancing down slanty cascades, calming again gliding through patches of smooth glacier meadows with sod of alpine agrotis mixed with blue and white violets and daisies, breaking, tossing among rough boulders and fallen trees, resting in calm pools, flowing together until, all united, they go to their fate with stately, tranquil gestures like a full-grown river. At the crossing of the Mono Trail, about two miles above the head of the Yosemite Fall, the stream is nearly forty feet wide, and when the snow is melting rapidly in the spring, it is about four feet deep, with a current of two and a half miles an hour. This is about the volume of water that forms the fall in May and June when there had been much snow in the preceding winter, but it varies greatly from month to month. The snow rapidly vanishes from the open portion of the basin, which faces southward, and only a few of the tributaries reach back to perennial snow and ice fountains in the shadowy amphitheatres on the precipitous northern slopes of Mount Hoffman. The total descent made by the stream from its highest sources to its confluence with the Merced in the valley is about 6,000 feet, while the distance is only about 10 miles, an average fall of 600 feet per mile. The last mile of its course lies between the sides of sunken domes and swelling folds of the granite that are clustered and pressed together like a mass of bossy cumulus clouds. Through this shining way, Yosemite Creek goes to its fate, swaying and swirling with ease, graceful gestures and singing the last of its mountain song before it reaches the dizzy edge of Yosemite to fall 2,600 feet into another world, where climate, vegetation, inhabitants are all different. Emerging from this last canyon, the stream glides in flat lace-like folds down a smooth incline into a small pool where it seems to rest and compose itself before taking the grand plunge. Then calmly, as if leaving a lake, it slips over the polished lip of the pool, down another incline, and out over the brew of the precipice in a magnificent curve, thick sown with rainbow spray. The Yosemite Fall. Long ago, Before I had traced this fine stream to its head back of Mount Hoffman, I was eager to reach the extreme verge to see how it behaved in flying so far through the air. But after enjoying this view and getting safely away, I have never advised anyone to follow my steps. The last incline down which the stream journeys so gracefully is so steep and smooth, one must slip cautiously forward on hand and feet alongside the rushing water, which so near one's head is very exciting. But to gain a perfect view, one must go yet further, over a curving brow, to a slight shelf on the extreme brink. This shelf formed by the flaking off of a fold of granite, is about three inches wide, just wide enough for a safe rest for one's heels. To me, it seemed nerve-trying to slip this narrow foothold and poise on the edge of such a precipice so close to the confusing whirl of the waters, and after casting longing glances over the shining brow of the fall, and listening to its sublime psalm, I concluded not to attempt to go nearer, but, nevertheless, against reasonable judgement, I did. Noticing some tufts of Artemisa in a cleft of rock, I filled my mouth with leaves, hoping their bitter taste might help to keep caution keen and prevent giddiness. In spite of myself, I reached the little ledge, got my heels well set, and worked sideways, twenty or thirty feet, to a point close to the out-plunging current. Here, the view is perfectly free, down into the heart of the bright, irised throng of comet-like streamers, into which the whole ponderous volume of the fall separates Two or three hundred feet below the brow. So glorious a display of pure wilderness, acting at close range, while cut off from the whole world beside, is terribly impressive. A less nerve trying view may be obtained from a fissured portion of the edge of the cliff about 40 yards to the eastward of the fall. Seen from this point towards noon, in the spring, the rainbow on its brow seems to be broken up and mingled with the rushing comets, until all the fall is stained with iris colours, leaving no white water visible. This is the best of the safe views from above. The huge, steadfast rocks, the flying waters, and the rainbow light. Forming one of the most glorious pictures conceivable. The Yosemite Fall is separated into an upper and a lower fall, with a series of falls and cascades between them. But when viewed in front from the bottom of the valley, they all appear as one. So grandly does this magnificent fall display itself from the floor of the valley. Few visitors take the trouble to climb the walls to gain the nearer views, unable to realize how vastly more impressive it is nearby than at a distance of one or two miles. A Wonderful Ascent The views developed in a walk up the zigzags of the trail leading to the foot of the upper fall, are about as varied and impressive as those displayed along the favorite Glacier Point Trail. One rises as if on wings. The groves, meadows, fern flats, and reaches of the river gain new interest, as if never seen before, all the views changing in a most striking manner as we go higher from point to point. The foreground also changes every few rods in the most surprising manner, although the earthquake talus and the level bench on the face of the wall over which the trail passes seems monotonous and commonplace as seen from the bottom of the valley. Up we climb with glad exhilaration through shaggy fringes of laurel, synethus, Glossy leaved manzanita and live oak, from shadow to shadow across bars and patches of sunshine, the leafy openings making charming frames for the valley pictures beheld through gem, and for the glimpses of high peaks that appear in the distance. The higher we go, the farther we seem to be from the summit of the vast granite wall. Here we pass a projecting buttress whose grooved and rounded surface tells a plain story of the time when the valley, now filled with sunshine, was filled with ice, when the grand old Yosemite glacier, flowing river-like from the distant fountains, swept through it, crushing grinding, wearing its way even deeper, developing and fashioning these sublime rocks. Again, we crossed a white, battered gully, the pathway of rock avalanches or snow avalanches. Farther on, we came to a gentle stream slipping down the face of the cliff in lace-like strips, and dropping from ledge to ledge, too small to be called a fall, trickling, dripping, oozing, a pathless wanderer from one of the upland meadow lying a little way back of the valley rim, seeking a way century after century to the depths of the valley without any appreciable channel. Every morning after a cool night, evaporation being checked, it gathers strength and sings like a bird, but as the day advances and the sun strikes its thin currents outspread on the heated precipices, most of its waters vanish ere the bottom of the valley is reached. Many a fine, hanging garden, aloft on breezy, inaccessible heights, Owes to it its freshness and fullness of beauty. Ferneries in shady nooks, filled with Adiantum, Woodwardia, Woodsia, Aspidium, Pelea, and chelanthes, rosetted and tufted and ranged in lines, daintily overlapping, thatching the stupendous cliffs with softest beauty, some of the delicate fronds seeming to float on the warm, moist air without any connection with rock or stream. Nor is there any lack of coloured plants wherever they can find a place to cling to. Lilies and mints, the showy cardinal millimers, and glowing cushions of the golden bahia enlivened with butterflies and bees and all other small, happy humming creatures that belong to them. After the highest point on the lower division of the trail is gained, it leads up into the deep recess occupied by the Great Fall, the noblest display of falling water to be found in the valley, or perhaps in the world, when it first comes in sight, it seems almost within reach of one's hand, so great in the spring is its volume and velocity. Yet it is still nearly a third of a mile away, and appears to recede as we advance. The sculpture of the walls about it is on a scale of grandeur, according nobly with the full plain and massive, though elaborately finished, like all the other cliffs about the valley. In the afternoon, an immense shadow is cast athwart at the plateau in front of the fall, and over the chaparral bushes that clothe the slopes and branches of the walls to the eastward, creeping upward until the fall is wholly overcast the contrast between the shaded and illuminated sections being very striking in these near views. Under this shadow, during the cool centuries immediately following the breakup of the glacial period, dwelt a small residual glacier, one of the few that lingered on this sun-beaten side of the valley after the main trunk glacier had vanished. It sent down a long, winding current through the narrow canyon on the west side of the fall, and must have formed a striking feature of the ancient scenery of the valley, the lofty fall of ice and fall of water side by side, yet separate and distinct. The coolness of the afternoon shadow and the abundant, dewy spray make a fine climate for the plateau ferns and grasses, and for the beautiful azalea bushes that grow here in profusion and bloom in September, long after the warm thickets down on the floor of the valley have withered and gone to seed. Even close to the fall, and behind it at the base of the cliff, a few venturesome plants may be found, Undisturbed by the rock shaking torrent. The basin at the foot of the fall, into which the current directly pours, when it is not swayed by the wind, is about 10 feet deep and 15 to 20 feet in diameter. That it is not much deeper is surprising when the great height and force of the fall is considered but the rock where the water strikes probably suffers less erosion than it would were the descent less than half as great, since the current is outspread and much of its force is spent ere it reaches the bottom, being received on the air as upon an elastic cushion, and borne outward and dissipated over a surface more than fifty yards wide. This surface, easily examined when the water is low, is intensely clean and fresh-looking. It is the raw, quick flesh of the mountain, wholly untouched by the weather. In summer droughts, when the snowfall of the preceding winter has been light, the fall is reduced to a mere shower of separate drops, without any obscuring spray. Then we may safely go back of it and view the crystal shower from beneath, each drop wavering and pulsing as it makes its way through the air, and flashing off jets of colored light of ravishing beauty. But all this is invisible from the bottom of the valley, like a thousand other interesting things. One must labor for beauty. As for bread, here as anywhere else...